cliffcentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. You're back on Cliff Central listening to the Daily Maverick Show. My name's Greg Nicholson, filling in for Kingsley Kapuri today, our regular host. I'm joined in studio by Fatima Matiba, uh, my colleague, intern, and a fantastic young writer. Uh, Fatima, how are you doing? I'm good in you, Greg. I'm good, thanks. Thanks for coming in today. We finally got you on air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Reluctantly, you can tell. <laughs> So today we're going to be talking a little bit about a few different issues. First, we're going to touch on the Kasatu Special National Congress. Um, what is going on with Kasatu? What will be the future of the of the Federation of Trade Unions, and what's it meaning for what will it mean for South African politics? We're going to be joined on the line by Daily Maverick journalist Ranjini Munasami uh, in just a moment. But Fatima, have you been following the the story? No, I haven't. Not really. <laughs> Let's find out from Ranjini what's going on. Are you with us, Ranjini? Yes, hello, Greg. Ranjini, um, can you tell, can you sort of paint us a picture of before this special national congress for Kasatu, what what was on the line, what was you know what was what was happening? Okay, well, the, this Kasatu special national congress was requested by uh, nine uh, affiliates of Kasatu when Limso, uh, prior to Limso's uh, expulsion. So um, they they wanted um, uh, this congress to discuss. Basically, the paralysis in Kosatu, uh, the failures of leadership to implement the resolutions of the 2012 Congress. And uh, basically, that Kosatu has been wrapped by divisions and factional battles. Um, so, so that's why they had requested it. But this was back uh, in 2013. So it took a long while to actually get the Congress convened. And the Kosatu president was talking here just now saying, that, um, you know, this Congress was actually quite unaffordable for them because they, they had not even budgeted for it, so they had to rely mm-hmm. on sponsors um, to actually hold it. But, you know, down there, uh, it's not actually clear what that purpose is. So NUMSA was the driving force behind this Congress, but they not allowed to attend. Mm-hmm. Um, and since the time of the request for the Congress to now, there have been dramatic developments in Kosata, as you know, the expansion of NUMSA and um, the expansion of the General Secretary, Azuelan Zimabavi. So People who are unions who are allied to them and have been supporting them have wanted that issue of the expulsion to be discussed by Congress. But uh, the Kuzaki president and the, and the faction around him were adamant that that could not be done. So yesterday, the first day of uh, the Congress was actually quite a bizarre day um, in the history of of, uh, of Kosati because, you know, I've attended uh, lots of these, you have as well. And, you know, Kosati is quite a transparent organization because it's mm. worker-based. They don't really do things behind closed doors. Um, you know, out of all the alliance partners, they have been the most transparent. But quite strangely, yesterday morning, they, they asked the media to leave. Um, they closed doors. They were actually quite hostile. There's high security presence uh, because they didn't want anybody else to be privy to what was going on. And there were intense battles that raged. So after 10 p.m. last night, um, and the issues that they were debating were issues like um, uh, the credentials, so who actually can attend this Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the, the, the faction allied to NUMSA and Tuvavi did not want this new metal workers union called Lemusa to be present. And they also objected to the presence of the second um, uh, deputy president of Kosatu, uh, Zingi Salosi. So that fight, can you believe it, raged for about eight hours um, yesterday. And um, so only late last night did uh, they vote on it. And um, basically, the, uh, you know, the dominant faction uh, won that battle. So the dominant faction and being aligned to the presence of Lamini, yep. yeah. Um, they, they won that battle. They won that quite a large number. Uh, but there were an, uh, uh, over 200 abstentions in that vote. Um, and, um, uh, or, or, you know, a, a small number, over just over 200, um, who voted against, uh, that, that presence. So that, um, uh, voting process actually revealed the balance of, of forces here at this Congress. That basically the, the faction allied to Nunta and Barbie are greatly outnumbered. Mm. And that is basically because Nunta is not allowed to attend because, you know, remember that they were the biggest union in Kasatu. So had they been here, they would have been uh, probably, uh, you know, closer, uh, closer voting numbers. But they are outnumbered. But I must say that even though that section is outnumbered, they are 
speaking up, they are giving the other section quite a run, you know, for the Congress to be held up for that long yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it, it just shows that they, they, they will not surrender easily. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we were wondering before before this Special National Congress whether it might be disrupted by either NUMSA supporters protesting outside or NUMSA's allies inside the hall sort of demonstrating there. Have we seen um, the Congress be disrupted at all? I know the media weren't happy and, uh, and had their own little social media protest about being locked up, but have, have we seen any of their delegates or, or unionists outside protesting? No, not at all. They, um, uh, the, NUMSA was debating whether they will uh, protest here. But it seems that they decided not to. And uh, in truth, they don't need to because they are uh, they're basically, you know, they, you can feel their presence in the room even though they're not here. Mm. Um, they seem that they have lobbied extensively among their allies to be able to speak on their behalf. Uh, but uh, as things stand, they remain out. They remain outside. They're not, they're not protesting here. But, the, uh, you know, the, the, the allies continue to make points on their behalf. Yes, the media was quite upset. You know, you have some, some journalists throwing hissy threats at things. <laughs> and understandably so. You know, you had to do a job. Um, this is a, a major event. It has major repercussions for Kutatu, for, the, the, for labor in South Africa, for leftist politics, and for the alliance. So it's a major event, and you know it's extremely disturbing that there's hostility against journalists, um, and that uh, you know that Kosati is now trying to to prevent the information from coming out. Mm. Mm. Now, uh, last night, uh, Kasatu President Stumad Lamini said that, that, that what's happened so far is a win for Kasatu, but it seems like it's a win for his faction at the moment. Would you agree? Yes, well, the numbers count in his side, so it is a win. But he, I think he would be extremely worried mm. that, you know, from, from 11 o'clock yesterday morning till 10 o'clock last night, he was battling to keep a grip on the Congress, mm-hmm. even though the numbers are in his favor. It shows that, you know, he can't easily exercise his authority as president. And I think that, the, um, uh, you know, he, the, the, the problem for him also is that while the numbers uh, are in his favor, um, you know, there is splintering and division in individual unions, even those allied to him. And um, one point is that the, the, the NUMSA um, allies were trying to argue strongly yesterday for a vote by secret ballot because they felt that a show of hands, uh, it, 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 you know, would, um, would not... Intimidation, uh, no? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, um, members who, who have differing views from their leadership, um, I would not be able to express it uh, openly because, you know, they would be defying the, the, the mandate. But there clearly are differences of views, and they wanted to create an atmosphere where those views could be expressed and could be reflected. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the leadership insisted on a show of hands because then, you know, people have to vote in blocks, basically. Mm-hmm. And that did count in, in, in the favour of the dominant faction. For a long time, it seems like NUMSA and Zwan Zimavavi have been trying to push for as many avenues they can to try and keep Kasatu together for as long as possible before perhaps forming some sort of other federation of trade unions or, or pushing with a workers' party. Do you think Kasatu, after this, will be able to um, avoid a complete fracture? I don't know. That's difficult to say. Um, right now, the discussion has just begun on uh, a discussion this document on unity and cohesion. Uh, I think that NUMSA has been worried about going too much uh, out on a limb without being able to carry uh, its allies with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, it, and I think that's been reflected in uh, the United Front. They, they did take a risk by forming the United Front, but the problem for them is that they didn't carry those eight other unions which have been acting with them. They, they didn't carry them onto the, the United Front. They, those unions, most of their members, still support the ANC and still may want to re- remain in Kosatu if um, they're able to, you know, uh, get Kosatu to, to, to act more in a democratic fra- fashion. So, um, you know, by the, by the end of this, uh, this special congress, by, by tonight, hopefully, um, you know, there, there, there will be some kind of indication of where Kosatu is heading, whether it is able to unite its divergent forces or whether the... Um, the rebel unions will feel that they no longer belong here, that they're not getting a fair hearing, that uh, they no more, they no, no longer feel uh, have confidence in the leadership. And so then you may see that uh, you know NUMSA would be then bold enough 
And it'll also be interesting to see how these how these sort of rebel unions respond to the heavy-handed tactics and the secrecy being implemented by the Kasatu leadership right now. But Ranjini, yes. oh sorry. Yes. Um, uh, look, you know, the, the thing is that I think that um, after the the vote yesterday, things have settled down a lot because I think now everybody in this room knows what the numbers are. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, yesterday they were much more emboldened because they didn't know. Uh, they thought that they couldn't help. They thought that they had a lot more support than they did, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's clear that the so far they're acting in blocks. But um, we'll we'll have have to hear how the discussions uh, go now because they're not now open discussions. They cut out the the commission, so it's all going to happen here on the floor today. If, if so, you know, we'll, we'll just have to monitor and see what happens. Mm. Ranjini, we saw earlier today the the Speaker of the National Assembly and ANC National Chairperson Bleka Mbete address the Special National Congress. Did she express any fear from the ANC side at, um, at what sort of impact uh, this division could have on the ANC's? Um, um, election chances? Well, obviously, um, the NC has a vested interest in Kosovo remaining united and remaining in the alliance because they need um, the workers to basically re- remain, uh, you know, marching in line with, with, the, with the NC's vision and NC's program of action. It, the, the, I think the rebellion in Kosovo has negatively affected uh, the NC. We have to, uh, they don't, I don't think they want anybody else to follow Nunsa on the way out because Nunsa withdrew their support, electoral support for the ANC formally. They also, uh, withdrew funding for the ANC. And I think that they cannot afford, um, that kind of messaging to go out any longer. Um, so, uh, she was speaking very strongly in favor of, um, of, of Kusati uniting mm-hmm. and dealing with its divisions, um, and be able to, um, you know, have debates in a disciplined and mature fashion, is, is the way she put it. Mm-hmm. But it seems the ANC is quite wary about um, pushing too strongly for NUMSA or Vavi to be to come back within Kasatu because they don't want to take away the, the Federation's sovereignty, perhaps. Yes, look, uh, you know, the, I think there are two, two schools of thought in the ANC. I think um, uh, there's, there's some people in the, in, in the ANC leadership who believe that they can pull it back, that you know they can pull NUMSA and Vavi back. But others feel that, you know, that they have been troublemakers, they have been campaigning against the AIDS for a long time, so perhaps, you know, they should go their own way. Um, so that's why I think there is a caution from the, from the ANC that, you know, there was a time when they were, they were urging people to set aside distance and trying to heal the divisions, but now I think that they're just trying to consolidate the unions who the main in Kosatu and keep them on side. Mm-hmm. We saw recently, I think it was last week, or the week before last week, there was a tripartite alliance summit, you know, with the SACP, Kosatu and the ANC coming together. Could this Special National Congress for Kosatu help really unite the, the alliance in, in, in terms of pushing for the future elections and perhaps rectifying some of their past wrongs? Or Well, again, the Kosatu president in his address spoke very strongly about that alliance outcome. They say, he said that it was a powerful summit. It set the line of march. Um, and uh, basically, you know, uh, because uh, I think Mumsa had campaigned very strongly for the, you know, a withdrawal from the alliance, saying that there was no, no longer a reason for um, the unions to remain in alliance with, with uh, the ANC because they get nothing out of that relationship. And basically, the workers just uh, serve as voting cattle for the ANC. Um, so, uh, you know, there's quite, quite a strong counter-argument coming from the Kosatu leadership now saying um, it is important that we remain in the alliance, um, you know, that uh, the ANC is still, um, you know, the best way for workers' interests to um, be advanced and um, uh, and basically trying to argue that the views of Kosatu is still being respected even though there is a general acknowledgement that Kosatu failed to uh, convince the ANC to change its position, for example, on ETOLs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And after this Congress, considering it, well, it looks like um, Vavi and Numsa definitely won't help them be reinstated within Kasatu, where do you see the future for Numsa and Vavi? Because now this leaves them in a bit of a... It's, it's sort of a crossroads for them. Yeah, oh, yeah at a media briefing on Sunday, uh, the Numsa Deputy General Secretary Kassunsa was basically saying this is like the last round of battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if they can't win, I don't think they're going to wait till November to still appeal their case. I think that they're going to go, go their own way now. 
they have resources. They've been lobbying extensively. They've been traveling um, to other parts of the world. They basically get support for a new leftist movement. So they have a lot of balls in the air. They have the United Front, which is a, a, a collection of, of social movements. Uh, or social organizations, and um, they want to start an alternative federation. And they also have um, a, a, a resolution to pursue forming a new leftist workers' party. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they, they, I, I don't know what exactly Bavi's role will be in all of that, um, but I think that would be now, with, you know, that they will gauge at the, on the outcome of the Kusati uh, Special National Congress the way everyone stands and um, what exactly it would make sense for them to pursue now. Mm-hmm. And do you get a sense from the Kusati National Congress now that there is a concern for workers? Because it seems with all this division that the workers and their and their issues have been forgotten. Well, there's a lot of focus on the organizational aspect. Mm. Um, you know, there was a little talk, for example, on Maritana. Okay. Uh, and, and, and an attack on, on, on London, basically, from the Kosato president saying, you know, that they were just pursuing profits and didn't act in the interest of workers and things. But it was just basically, you know, a, a, a throwaway part of his speech, um, not the main focus. But yes, this is a big problem that, you know, they, that there is no sort of nuts and bolts issues on worker issues being discussed and, and issues such as, that, you know, poverty and the plight of workers, the cost of living. Um, the battles of workers on the, on the shop floor. Those, those issues are not up for discussion. It's more about organizational issues and, um, and the state of Kosata at the moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, Ranjini, I think we'll leave it there. I'm sure you have to get back to the Congress. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks very Enjoy much. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thank, thank you. you. That was Ranjini Munasami, Daily Maverick journalist um, at the Kasatu Special National Congress, looking at issues of, of Kasatu's division and what's going to happen to the Alliance and the National Union of Metal Workers as well as the former Kasatu General Secretary as well and Zimavavi after this, and it doesn't look good for them. But I'm joined in studio uh, with a Daily Maverick intern, um, journalist, young writer, uh, Fatima Matiba and Fatima, we're talking outside a little bit about an article you wrote recently, mm-hmm. looking at issues of going from, I suppose, the university space into the workplace, and some of the challenges that even if you have a degree or even if you are, you know, you're reasonably qualified and things like that, when you go into the workplace, one of the key ways you go in there is or get your foot in the door is, of course, through internships. Yeah, and you wrote a piece talking about how, as an intern. A lot of the intern positions available are actually unpaid. Yes. Making it extremely difficult. Can you just elaborate on some of these, some of these challenges and, and what you've seen in your own experience? Um, well, I think my experience was a lot easier than a lot of other people's experiences just because I have parents that can afford to support me. So I'm in a six month internship and it's unpaid and so I need to be supported for six months. Someone needs to pay for my transport um, and my food and stuff. Um, And I found that a lot of people that I was working with had a tougher time time than I did uh, because their parents uh, had a lot more um, difficulties providing the things that they needed to give the other interns for six months. So... Yeah, I just feel like being an unpaid intern, depending on your background, uh, varies, and it's mm-hmm. a lot more difficult for people to do it. Mm-hmm. What are some of those challenges that you've seen your friends face? Who so you said their their parents might come from more, they might have more difficulties that they face. What are some of those things that might make it more difficult to even just get your foot in the door in a workplace and do do an internship? So I found that a lot of the interns that actually have qualifications and degrees are expected to immediately go into the workplace and earn a salary, and uh, their parents continually put pressure on them to leave the internship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, they feel like their lack of experience holds them back from getting these jobs. So they're kind of caught mm. in a very awkward position. Um, a lot of the interns struggle with transport. Um, we know what a nightmare transport in South Africa in general is like. Hmm, so lo- if you're in Johannesburg and perhaps you live in um, Deepcliff or something in Soweto and you need to get to work, you know, there and back every day. A exactly. taxi is what, like 15 rand each way or something? Oh, exactly. That's if you live in town. Maybe if you're going to Santon, it's more. So you might be spending, you know, at least 50 rand or something a day just yeah. on just on public transport. Yeah. 
And we often find that um, when it comes to the working hours, uh, a lot of the interns have difficulties working things that run later on into the night because of safety mm-hmm. and getting access to public transport late at night. So if you don't have a car, it's also quite difficult to do an internship. Mm-hmm. So in your experience and for yourself and some of your friends, have you found that it is still valuable to do one of these unpaid internships? I guess it's sometimes the only way that you're going to get into the get some experience in the workplace. I think sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and do it if you want experience and if you're really keen on getting into the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also do think that you need to be sure that it's what you want to do because um, it is it is a tough process. So only do it if you're sure you really want to get into that industry and you want to pursue that career. Mm-hmm. Is it frustrating for for perhaps yourself, you're a young graduate, you know, you're, you're academically very qualified, and then you have to come on, and, and obviously you've got skills to bring, considering um, considering just, just the schooling that you've been through, you know, which you've done a lot of. Um, is it frustrating then to have to go and say, oh, I have to sign up for six months, unpaid, and my parents are going to be out of pocket trying to pay for some things like transport? I think for me, I've begun to realize that uh, no matter how qualified I am, I'm going to have to start at the bottom. And if I have to do it for six months, I'm more than willing to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm lucky enough that I actually can do that. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people assume that people my age think that if they have a certain uh, level of education, then they'll want to immediately jump into um, a career that's a job that's not an entry level job. I think that's that's not true. You have to do the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But surely employers must step up and try and try and offer some sort of stipend or some sort of at least pay expenses and things like that, no? I definitely do think that given the history of our country and the positions that a lot of people that are young and black find themselves in, that companies do have to do that. If they uh, really want to benefit the country and uh, affect this uh, youth unemployment, then they actually they actually have to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen in certain cases with some interns where if companies don't at least pay expenses or pay um, some sort of stipend, what you end up getting is almost a a, a, a cycle of a repeated cycle of the inequalities we already have in our country because. The people who can get to work, the people who can afford perhaps their their cell phone expenses or have internet at home are the ones who already have money. I agree. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely, when I look at my situation, I find that, um, for example, I can go report on an event that's late at night Mm -hmm. and then I produce... Because you've got a car. Yeah, because I've got a car and um, I can drive around late at night and then I end up producing one extra article and it looks like I'm working harder, but really I just have a car so I could go to that event. You've just got more access than a lot of other people do. Exactly. I think it's a really interesting situation that a lot of employers have to confront and it's not an easy position to be in as a young person just trying to get into the workplace, even get it getting into professional jobs. I think it's a really quite a quite a struggle that we have to look at. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. My name's Greg Nicholson, filling in for Kingsley Kapoori. Um, I'm joined with uh, Daily Maverick um, colleague and my and contributor for Team Amativa. Um, soon we're going to be jumping to looking at a case in the Western Cape High Court, where last week um, Judge uh, Siraj Desai uh, declared that Ghanashi orders or deductions taken from employees' salaries were illegal. Fatima, you followed this case a little bit. Yeah, I did. Okay, and what did you think? Um, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, I did know about garnishy orders briefly, um, a little bit. I wasn't too schooled on the topic. Um, but I really think that this is an interesting case. Mm. Um, and just for everyone else out there, garnishy orders basically, or I think it's emolument attachment orders, essentially are when if you, if you owe something, if you're in debt and you're not paying your debt and you have a creditor or something, that, that creditor can go and apply to the courts. And and through that, they can get a court order that will that will mean that 
from your paycheck, your employer will deduct a certain amount and that will go towards paying that debt off. But we've seen widespread abuse of this practice and, and often if you have a low wage, it ends up meaning that you have a much, much lower wage because you know a lot of your money is going to pay whatever this debt is that you may not have paid off. Um, and so in a moment... Where I think, yep. Okay, so right now I think we're joined by the University of Stellenbosch's um, uh, 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 Matilda Ross Lee, coordinator of the financial literacy project um, for their legal aid clinic. And Matilda was involved in the case that I'm talking about in Western Cape. Matilda, are you with us? Yes, I am. Hello. Hey, thanks for joining us. First of all, can you just tell us about how did this case start? Because it actually sounds like quite a groundbreaking case. Where where did it come from, and how how did it, how did it end up with you guys? Um, well, we have been um, working with debt related matters for a very long time since mm-hmm. we opened the university. Um, so basically, um, the legal aid clinic um, has two functions. The one is we train law students, and the other one is we um, provide legal assistance, free legal assistance to the um, vulnerable uh, people in the community. And um, from the day that we open our offices' doors, we have been dealing with unlawful judgments or emolument judgment orders. Um, I started here in 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, that was when the debt review program was implemented to see how it will transpire when the National Credit Act, um, uh, you know, will be put in place, um, especially in terms of Section 86. So when I started here, I saw that there was a huge um, problem with reckless credit provision um, and then the emolument attachment orders was the only way, or the only, in most cases, a security for the creditors to get their capital back. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, 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 uh, that's, so we've been, I've been working with this since 2006, um, and then, um, uh, we, you know, it was difficult. We couldn't approach, we couldn't do then what we, what we did now because of Mrs. Wendy Alpabam, who came, you know, on board. And um, one of the um, emolument attachment orders were, um, you know, served on them for one of her employees. And by that time, she has read in the newspapers what we've done so far, and that, that's how I understand it. And um, she wanted to make an appointment to see whether we can address this situation on a big scale. Um, through class action, um, but since I'm so busy with, um, you know, yeah, I'm so busy doing the groundwork that um, in order to get all this information together to do the research for a case like this, um, uh, I I didn't foresee that we will be able to do that, um, mm-hmm. but she insisted. Um, and um, it, that's why we, we, she was the drive behind all, uh, all this. Uh, so she did her own research. She got the attorney. She got our counsel. And um, she just used our case studies um, uh, as, as examples. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and, and so, so for our listeners, uh, Wendy Applebaum is a, is a pro- prolific businesswoman and philanthropist, yes. well-known philanthropist. What was her motivation for coming to you? Was it, was it that her, her workers, uh, she thought it was dodgy perhaps, what was going on? Um, yeah, because the, her concern was um, that the specific employee, he mm-hmm. didn't know what the debt was about. Um, it was debt that was ceded. Um, I think in his case it was a furniture store that has ceded the debt uh, to another collection agency. Okay. So on the court order, you will get a different name from the original creditor. And I could immediately see but that, you know, because I've been working with this kind of thing, I was sure that it was either, uh, um, um, uh, you know, another credit or, uh, you know, something uh, or a debt that has been ceded or 
um, uh, sold to mm-hmm. debt collectors. Mm-hmm. So um, she, you know, that I, I think she used Summit, um, who investigated that further. Mm-hmm. But uh, like I said, because they were, there's such a concern with regards to farm workers, um, and that's the type of clientele, or not type, sorry, um, we deal mainly um, uh, with farm workers and support staff at the uh, residences here on campus, um, all over in in the whole Wineland, Greater Wineland District. So, um, because it impacted them so much more, she she was keen that we, um, um, you know, use them as examples mm-hmm. of of the problems that exist. Okay, so so one of one of Wep, well, Wendy Applebaum's workers, who I assume is a farm worker, am, am I right? Yes. Um, yes. W- was getting deductions from uh, his his paycheck, and he didn't know what it was. And then they come to you. What happens next? Um. Well. Um. You, you, um. She. I. I told her at that stage. I told her. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know who she was, <laughs> and, and I just thought she's one of um, a, a very concerned employer. I, I deal with concerned employers a lot um, who refer cases to me um, with concern about the employees' um, problems with debt collectors. Um, and I told her, well, he can make appointment with me, and we can open a file, we can investigate everything, Um um, and then uh, see how it transpires. And she, oh, I asked her, I told her, you know what you can do? You can, if you, you can help, if you can just e- educate your farm workers about the procedure with regards to emoluments attachment orders. Mm. Um, now I laugh about it when I think it back. Um, but, but she was, because she wants to do so much more than just educational programs on the farm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's when this whole thing, she, then, uh, the meeting started taking place. She arranged meetings with Weber Rensel, our attorney, our debt holdernays, and the council. And they have, uh, you know, I wasn't involved with the meetings, but they've put in a lot of work. Many hours to to get the facts together to go through all the cases because we don't have just fifteen you know cases of about emoluments and attachment orders um, from between two thousand and ten and to date I have four hundred thirty two emo- separate emoluments attachment order investigations. Okay. Um, so, um, and that's, that figure is um, based on every case, every emolument attachment order. If one client can have four or five. I had one client who had seven emolument attachments on his salary. I can't imagine it would be taking much home yeah. after that. But, but the, problem, the problem with this specific case was, um, in, in my opinion, from my perspective, you know, you see there's a lot of, emolument attachment orders that were unlawfully um, 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 issued or at the jurisdiction was incorrect or uh, what the matter might be. But um, the problem is the reckless credit provision. Um, the, and Because by the time that these clients were entering into Credit agreements with SA Multiline or one of the shelf companies, or you know, but mainly SA Multiline. Mm-hmm. Then, um, by that time, they were already overindebted, mm-hmm. um, and the credit was granted according to the evidence I have. Um, in the cases where the micro lender SA Multiline was involved, mm-hmm. that was the scenario. They were already over-indebted due to other credit providers who issued um, um, credit recklessly. And that, the sad story, after the National Credit Act was implemented. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that was a big issue. So the, 
Another thing is the people didn't have access to justice because the judgments were taken before judgments were taken in places far off or in most of the cases. They signed documents without knowing what they were signing or they thought they just signed a a tenant's register, you know, the the, uh, agent who visited them, a tenant's register. Because in some cases, the clients were adamant that they they won't sign, and then the agent would tell them, just sign as proof that I have been with you. Mm-hmm. So, um, or that I told you, or that I came to see you, and this is all, you know, it's the only reason why you sign. So some people have four or five um, immoral judgment orders against them, but they only signed one. Mm-hmm. So um, then, you know, you have to... Um, um, ask when we ask for original documents about the debt, because in some cases the clients never entered into a credit agreement with SI Multiloan or with one of the JD Group, um, um, you know, um, uh, branches, mm-hmm. you know, any of the furniture stores. Um, so then it's difficult because they would just attach an affidavit that would say that all the original documents was lost or burned in a fire or what the case might be. So um, it was really, really difficult Mm -hmm. to get, in our case, where our clients can't afford um, legal service, to get a correspondent in 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 a town far away where we don't have legal aid, you know, correspondence. So um, so I'm so grateful and thankful for all those correspondents who have been w- willing to help us free of charge on pro bono basis mm-hmm. to assist us with these applicants' um, applications in, in court um, all over. And so, what, what did we hear in court, Matilda? We just have to. We're, we don't have too much time left. Um, can you tell me okay. a, a bit of a wrap up as to as to what um, the the eventual court order, court order and the judgment entail? It sounded like it was quite scathing. Um, yeah. Well, we expected the impact. Was, that's why we did it, um, and that's why we are overjoyed by the outcome. Um, we are so relieved, and we 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 so glad for the sake of all our applicants, our clients, and all the debtors in you know all the consumers who has been bullied into these emolument attachment orders. Um, and then we humble, we humbled by the goodwill of Wendy Abobam, Adit Haldenas, and our council. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and sorry, for consumers across the country who might have emolument attachment orders against them, what might this case mean for them? Uh, at the moment. Uh, in, in the yeah, future. Will, will they have, have current emolument attachment orders. Mm-hmm. They, they have the right, in any event, to challenge the, um, the emolument attachment order, where it was issued. Was it issued in the court where they are residing or um, um, working? So it's not where the head office where they work is uh, is situated. It is where they are actually working. Mm -hmm. The the court order must be issued in that jurisdiction. Uh, Also, was the court order issued by a clerk of the court or um, was there judicial oversight? Mm -hmm. Um, And then if they have paid, you know, if they have paid and the court order was illegal, they have the right to actually um, claim any money that were collected in terms of that court order mm-hmm. um, to claim it back. And how widespread do you think that these abuses on these on these orders are across the country? Well, if I look at our examples, and this is not only since it's a multi-loan or Flemix came, you know, um, surfaced. Um, way before that, or for a long time, it's 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 specific some um, firms that that's guilty of this, that where they use 
you know, um, forum shop, shopping or court, court way out of the reach of the debtors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, if, if I look at our examples, it is it's quite uh, huge. Okay, Matilda, thank you so much for joining us today. That's all we have time for. That's uh, Matilda Ross Lee, coordinator of the Financial Literacy Project at the University of Stellenbosch's Legal Aid Clinic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, you're with the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Um, now, Fatima, one thing that I think the reason we wanted to bring this up is just because because garnishee orders and emolument attachment orders are such a big issue across the country, and there are so many dodgy practices. There are so many dodgy practices going on that that we really want to bring it up and talk about what's happening. And also, I don't know if you know this or a lot of people know this, but the credit problems with credit lending and unscrupulous lending and, you know, these sort of dodgy micro lenders and things like that yeah. um, was even one of the key drivers behind the Maracana strikes in 2012. And it still exists, particularly in the mining areas. But consumers across the country face all of these issues. And many people find that they'll have deductions from their salary that they, they don't know what's going on, they don't know where it's going to, they don't know how long it's going to keep on happening for. And and there are many cases, I know Summit Garnashi Solutions is one organization looking into this, and it's found huge amounts of of money that have, has been taken off um, debtors, and it's actually been it found out to be illegal. They're taking, it, taking money when they shouldn't be taking money. Yeah. So I think it's important that we highlight that situation. Um and in in a minute, we're going to go to Richard Poplack, Danny Maverick journalist, and to talk about the Tour de France. There's some exciting things over there. Richard, are you with us? I am with you, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too bad. So to finish off the show today, we're just going to talk to Richard a little bit about what's going on in the Tour de France. I think we're up to stage 10, aren't we, Richard? Yes, stage 10 today. Uh, it was a rest day yesterday, and uh, yeah, today's a, a very, very tricky um Tricky stage. Mm-hmm. We saw some pretty hard racing sort of throughout the first week of the Tour de France, but I think if you're looking at the event from here in South Africa, this real story has to be MTN Quebec's um, rise and success. Hundred uh, percent. Um, I mean, this is the first uh, de facto African team uh, mm. that's been fielded and managed uh, for the Tour de France. So it's really a monumental um, moment for the sport and a monumental burn for African cycling. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody really understands that. Um, there's been an, a fortune of media surrounding the, uh, the NTN Quebec guys over in France. Um, some of the images of them just, just crowded with photographers as they get off their bike. In particular, Daniel Teclama, the, um, the, uh, Eritrean cyclist. Um, it, it's, it's been enormously exciting and I think everybody sort of understands how momentous this is for, for African cycling and for African sports. Mm. And I think also just for the changing of the future of cycling, because traditionally, if, um, if if anyone follows cycling, everybody knows that the large majority of cycling and where it's, you know, the real heartland of cycling is around Europe. And, you know, it's particularly a white European sport. And all of a sudden, this is starting to mix it up. Uh, it's definitely it's definitely a white European sport. But what I think a lot of us have forgotten is sort of the roots of the sport, and, and that is that it was a... You know, it sort of emerged from from the the, the sort of um, the, the sort of dust of the industrial age, mm. and it was very much a working class sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, rich folk just didn't get on bicycles. It was it was uh, you know it really was um, a, a sport that working class people uh, took seriously and, and and got involved in. Um, you know, there are all sorts of of communist initiatives to, to unionize Tour de France cyclists in the early days. Um, they called them the, the sort of slaves of the road. Um, you, you know, so there is this this kind of link between uh, what's happening with this whole Africa rising narrative, uh, sort of slowly industrializing African countries and emerging African working class, and this sort of idea of Africans getting on bicycles um, and, and starting to achieve great things. Mm-hmm. The you know the traditional story of these sort of you hear all these myths about the great cyclists that came up and stories about them perhaps one day you know they're going home from they're working at a young age or going home from school or something like that and they'd race the school bus or mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. stories like that and it really does seem to fit into the same sort of position that a lot of African countries face right now you can imagine some school kids out there you know who you know they can't their family doesn't have a car they can't they don't really can't afford public transport but maybe they've got a bicycle. And that's and that's one way that they can find number one freedom and number two just general transport. Well, well I certainly think that plays a role. But um, the the amazing thing is when you look at the figures and, and uh, Quebecer, the charity that uh, MTN is affiliated with, um, and and they're involved with bringing 
uh, bringing bicycles, bringing homemade South African bicycles to uh, to children. When you look at the, the the stats, there are almost no bicycles on the continent. Mm. Very, very, very few Africans get on bicycles. That's something that Quebec hopes to change. Mm-hmm. Once they have sort of made this cultural shift, what you're starting to look at is a whole bunch more Africans starting to ride bikes, and the pool uh, sort of starting to widen. Uh, that being said, in countries where there are um, sort of uh, uh, cycling cultures, uh, Eritrea, number one, South Africa, number two, you're starting to see amazing results. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, da- Daniel Teklehemot is, is currently in the in the King of the Mountains jersey at the Tour de France. The first uh, African rider to wear the jersey, right? Uh, well, South Africa's riders have worn the jersey. I mean, if you, in, in real terms, Chris Froome is a South African cyclist. Okay. I mean, he mm-hmm. did so much of his of his formative training here. Um, what I find a bit insulting is that he doesn't uh, credit this country with, with doing more for the establishment uh, of, of his career, but that's his choice. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, you know, he, you know, Daryl Impey has worn yellow. Yeah. Um, there are other guys who, who had some real success. In, Robert, Robbie Hunter's uh, worn the white jersey, has he? Yep, yeah. correct, he has. So there's, you know, South Africa has seen some success at the tour and in the European circuit, but I think what NTN will do especially with some of the more talented South African cyclists, is start uh, building real GC or general classification contenders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you see, now we have Dan- Daniel uh, Teclamont um, in the in the Polkadot jersey, the King of the Mountains jersey. Mm-hmm. Do you think he'll be able to hold on to it through the mountains? Is he, is he and these Eritreans, are they there yet in terms of uh, their natural climbing ability? Um, you know... It's, it's much more. It much. It much more comes down to team tactics and mm-hmm. what Doug Ryder, who is the, the team manager, um, decides to do today. Today is a very very big day. Uh, there's a massive climb at the end of the race. But it's the only place that King of the Mountain points are available, and 30 points are up for grabs. So in other words, they have to keep him in contention to actually um, come close to winning the race. I mean, he has to be in the top five or six guys to claim um, at least some residual points from that climb in order to stay at the King, King of the Mountains jersey. So that means burning a whole bunch of matches um, to keep him up there in order to protect that jersey. And I'm not sure that's entirely worthwhile when they would probably like to see a stage win from Louis Mankey mm-hmm. um, later later in the tour once they get into the Alps. Mm-hmm. So it, it really comes down to strategy. And as you know, uh, Greg, um, cycling is an enormously strategic sport. So it comes down to what decisions Doug Ryder decides to make on the day. Um Armchair coaching, um, I would not throw all the matches at a day like today. Um, you, you know, you'd want to keep something in reserve and you'd want to, you'd want to hope for a stage win, uh, further down the line. So I think it's unlikely he'll hang on to the jersey, but I could be wrong. Hmm. One thing I've noticed with this MT and Quebec story is that it's largely, it seems to be a positive story that we can follow as cycling fans after many years of upsetting drug abuse stories. And it does seem to be a story that, you know, something new is happening. There's a new exciting frontier in cycling that that we can sort of latch onto, forgetting some of the painful past. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of those uh, one of those rare positive stories that sort of the sports encounters every now and again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can't speak for the uh, relative cleanliness or, or not of, of the MTN group. I think uh, Doug Ryder's philosophy is that he'd like to keep the team clean. Um, a lot of people say start out by saying that, and I think it's, it's a great ethos to, to keep in mind. You, you know, uh, Greg, I, I never go on record <laughs> saying that I think a team is clean. Yeah, uh, I think dirty until proven otherwise. Well, he, he's that's sure, said, and that's the case. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, that said, um, you know, we're in a we're in a we're in an era of much less doping mm-hmm. uh, than we were even five years ago, uh, especially in a race like the Tour de France. Uh, the Giro Leso and, and I, the, the Volta de España, which is the other grand tour, the third grand tour of the year, um, I think is completely dirty. Mm-hmm. So I, I think in a race like this one, you're looking at, at about as clean as it gets in, in the professional circuit. So yeah, you're right. It, it is, it is sort of a, a good news story in that respect. Mm-hmm. Now in general, what have you been, what have your highlights of the tour been so far? There's been some really exciting racing. Yeah, this is a fantastic racing. I mean, for me, the, the fact that the Klamath is, is in the is in the polka dot jersey is a highlight. Um, I think that that team has raced enormously aggressive cycling, uh, and I think it's been really, really gratifying to see. Um, I think the stage four um, day, or the very, very, or uh, I think the stage three day, uh, the very, very windy stage uh, across the uh, Zealand in in, um, 
in Holland was was just a a reminder to cycling fans that even a, a relatively flat, harmless-looking course on the profile can be enormously dangerous mm-hmm. um, and, and very, very tough racing once the wind gets involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that cover effect, uh, which I think was stage six, was uh, was, was very, very exciting. Um, I, I think it's been an amazing tour. I think uh, um, there's been some great racing. And, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't think cycling fans could ask for better. No, I think it's incredible, considering the amount of hard racing we've had so far, and we're only just getting into the mountains today, really. Yeah, mm. yeah I mean, today we sort of nudge up against the first mountain stage. Mm-hmm. And it's been, uh, it, it's been, yeah, I mean... I wouldn't want to be in the saddle with those guys. It's, it's, been, it's been a nightmare up to now. Real, real race. Um, and you could see uh, someone like uh, Vincenzo Nibali, who, who really should be right up there with Chris Froome, is, is two and a, I think two minutes and 20 seconds back, mm. um, which is enormously dangerous for him. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's been some real attrition. It's, it's war out there. Now, before we let you go, Richard, uh, do you have a prediction for who might, uh, keep the, who might win the race? Is Chris Froome going to keep the yellow jersey? Well, look, I actually have money on uh, Alberto Contador. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. So, so I said I'm not willing to let that go yet. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he raced and won the Giro d'Italia, uh, three day, three weeks in the Italian mountains. So he's on tired legs, but I think he will race his way into fitness. Um, by the time he gets into the mountains, he'll start feeling good today. So I still kind of feel good about Contador, um, but Froome and Team Sky look very, very strong. And I think if... Uh, yeah, you know, if I if I take the money out of the equation, um, they're, they're probably the best guys for the job. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's all we have time for today. Thanks, Richard, for the chat. Maybe we'll g- give you another call when the when the Tour de France is up. Uh, brilliant. Look forward to it. <laughs> okay, cheers. You're listening to Daily Maverick on Cliff Central. Uh, my name is Greg Nicholson, and that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much to my guest, Fatima Matiba, who's been in the studio. Thanks for having me, Greg. Also, Matilda Rossley, coordinator of the Financial Literacy Project at the University of Stellenbosch's Legal Aid Clinic, and Ranjini Munasami, Daily Maverick journalist. Um, download the podcast and subscribe, and tune in next week. Thank you. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.